Welcome to a brand new episode of Give Me Those Star Wars, the podcast that doesn't know how to quit on the galaxy far, far away, and usually a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and joining me for this episode is one of my best friends and former guest of the show, my buddy Omar. What's up, Omar? Hey, Ryan. Good to see you. Just locked down here uh, during the coronavirus of Palooza. Ah, what else were you going to be doing? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We kind of speculated, all right, maybe we can find some time to record this episode. All of a sudden, we've got a lot of time to record this episode. Fire away, you know? Yeah. Uh, For those of you listening, what are we here to discuss this time? Omar reminded me not too long ago that the first time we talked about Star Wars on a podcast was even before The Force Awakens came out, way back on my Dead Both and Spies show, and we sort of previewed what we thought Disney's entire strategy would be, not just from the creative and narrative standpoint, but also from the business side. And now it's five years later, and I think we can probably revisit and reassess some of our ideas and offer up, I think, what you called a report card of sorts. But before that, even, you also came to me with this idea, a premise, a question that rattled around in my head for a little while. And the question was, would I be happier if the Star Wars franchise had ended with Return of the Jedi, and we had never gotten the resurgence of its popularity in the 90s with the special editions, and then the prequel trilogy of films, and then like the newest round of sequels and spinoffs, because the prequels to us were a really big disappointment, and the latest batch of movies have been frustrating. So what if Star Wars was just three movies from when we were little kids? Would that have been better? What brought about this question for you? Yeah, so this also was something that was rattling in my mind, and it just gave voice to a thought because I have noticed in my conversations with people, in, you know, sort of perusing social media, in picking up on you know, emerging thought patterns about these movies and how they're coming out. For the longest time, I think, you know, you and I lived as kids in, you know, a post-Return of the Jedi world where, you know, the future of Star Wars was probably not something that was concretely going to happen, you know, in the conventional movie universe that we had come to understand. So the rest of it was sort of left to imagination, you know, the the larger comic book world that I know that, you know, you were you you were heavily dabbling in those those uh, what's now known as the legends right. novels. I, I know that the Timothy Zahn trilogy, uh, which you know I'm actually just starting now for the first time in my life. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Timothy Zahn trilogy was something that you know invigorated a lot of interest in this expanded universe and set it off. But you know, for the longest time, it was it was people like you and me, uh, people of a certain age, um, you know, maybe between the ages of like thirty and forty five or fifty playing around with the concept of Star Wars, the future of Star Wars is a theoretical possibility, right? So we would, you know, we would sort of like play act, you know, when we were kids or sort of like imagine out, you know, pretend scripts, I'm sure when we were like, you know, pre-adolescence, but it was always this, this sort of theoretical possibility. And then, you know, you have the THX versions, the enhanced versions and the the special edition touch-ups and you think, okay, great. 
then the prequels come and our imagination goes wild and and it sort of meets this real life possibility these are actually happening and you know i I think the anticipation fair to say is something that was unprecedented and we experienced it together we were just coming out of high school when uh those prequels hit and then we went through college and i think the the last one uh finished up when well we were like 23 24 years old um and so as intense star wars nerds we experienced the intense uh anticipation and attended crushing disappointment of what those prequels were and and so that's fine and so the the consensus that we lived it with for a long time especially in the 10-year interval between revenge of the sith and the force awakens was those were terrible those permanently stained, damaged the Star Wars legacy. I know I lost interest in the franchise for a long time. I'm fairly certain you did too. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you know it was announced that Disney had a, was was acquiring Lucasfilm and that more Star Wars movies would be made, I think you and I started op- to open up to the potential of getting excited again. And I, rem- you know, you mentioned I had been a guest four and a half years ago on your Dead Bath and Spies podcast, and yeah, you're right. We talked about what to expect out of the the, the Disney acquisition and the resulting film projects. And this is going to sound like I'm taking a victory lap, and I am. But <laughs> part of you know, part of the my theory of the case when I was talking to you all those years ago about the Force Awakens and the upcoming movies was, hey, I'm kind of excited. We need to temper our expectations. Because look at the damage that's already been done because of the prequel trilogy. Look at the competing forces that are going to be in play, that are going to demand that these movies turn out a certain way. Look at you know the, the example set by the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It sounds like they're trying to do something similar. Box office demand. Like There's, there's just so much pressure on these movies to be so many different things. I think we can enjoy them, but we might have to let go of you know, the, the weight of crushing expectations. And so after the sequel, after the sequel trilogy came and went, and after the other two movies, I ended up thinking, wow, that was a qualified success. I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy. I'm very happy. Were there things about, you know, each movie that, that were curious to me and, and, and they make some decisions that were a little bit baffling and were some parts underwhelming? Sure. Was it balanced out by the fact that they absolutely didn't suck, that they were made with an eye for quality in, acting and dialogue that the plots while frustrating were generally cohesive um especially compared to the prequels did they rebound from the the lasting damage that the prequel trilogy had done absolutely i didn't even give that much thought and then recently i've been starting to pick up a a thread that has just sort of metastasized into something really far-ranging an emerging consensus that if anything the prequels are underrated and that people, by and large, are starting to wash their hands of the Disney movies. So, you know, whether it's people on social media, people I talk to personally, other fans that I've, that I've connected with, um, family members, friends, whatever, there is this, five years in, there's this thing of like, oh my god, those are not good. What a disappointment. Like, what a, you know, th- that, those didn't happen. We're just going to pretend that, you know, we're getting into like Godfather 3 territory with these movies and, you know, these people are – I'm seeing these best-of lists, these these ranking Star Wars lists where, you know, it was always strange to me that Revenge of the Sith was 
starting to become, you know, like go up higher and higher in people's estimation. I always, I already thought the initial reviews of it in 2005 were way too good. And just a reaction to how bad uh, Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones were. But unbelievably, there are arguments coming from sectors that I used to think were just general, generational, just young people who grew up, who were born in like 1990 and just sort of grew up with the prequels, falling in love with certain aspects of them. I thought it was just a generational thing. It's not. There is, I'm, and I'm afraid that if, if time goes on and the record is not corrected by someone like me, that <laughs> it's five years from now, ten years from now, we're going to look back on this whole project and the consensus is going to be, oh yeah, the prequels, I mean, there might have been flaws, but those were, those were good, those were original, those were trying to do something. And these, these Disney movies were paint-by-numbers, corporate garbage, and they never happened. And so I was just like... Okay, I'm going to go to, you know, someone like you who's an expert and a mediator and have a certain generation. I know how much you hated the prequels. I know to my dismay, and I've never actually gotten this out from you, but I know to my internal dismay that, like, you have probably not been super enthusiastic about the Disney movies. And I, I fear that if someone put a gun to your head, you would say, you know, I just kind of wish they hadn't been made because really I don't care. I don't care anymore. That's honestly, that's the the threat I pick up from you, although I'm too afraid to ask because I think it would just be disappointing for me, a fellow fan. Um, and so I'm just like, all right, I'll call your bluff. I'll call your bluff. If you had the opportunity to permanently live in that post-1983 world, but, but before 1999, where the future of Star Wars was just a theoretical possibility that lived in your mind, and we had books, and we had Millennium Falcon, you know, like model, like Lego models, and we could just write out our own little stories, and you didn't have to be confronted with the horror of the prequels, the permanent standing of the legacy, and then the artificial possibly expectations of the, the, the Disney acquisition, and then what apparently to a lot of people and possibly you is a, a, a relentless kind of series of disappointments. If you could just wipe it all out, would you take that bet? I know what my answer is. Absolutely not. But I fear that a lot of other people would say differently, including you. So I thought about that question after you asked. Um, <clears throat> my first answer was no, absolutely not. I wouldn't do it because of the reason that Star Wars is what introduced me to my wife. So we, we, we connected that way. But even setting all of that aside, like living in a hypothetical world where that wasn't, transporting myself back to my little kid days, even into my early teen years and everything, when Star Wars was just three movies and I wouldn't at the time, count, like, the Ewok movies, or at the time, I hadn't seen the holiday special, so those were kind of, it was just, like, the three movies, and then it was a handful of books that I had read, and some comics and everything, and I loved the movies, you know I did, you know, uh, like, more than anything, and the books that I had read were mostly terrific, I enjoyed them, I felt like they expanded the universe, and I I did, I did want to play, you know, dress up Star Wars and play with the toys, and, you know, we made our own lightsabers out of wiffle ball bats, that we just put electrical tape around the base to make it look like a lightsaber. Yes, back then, Star Wars was firing at 100%, there were no blemishes, there were no pockmarks on it, it looked great, Yeah, and since then... Things have been disappointing. Things have been frustrating. Things have been dismaying. But no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't throw those away. I wouldn't toss those out. Um, to say nothing of what value those have for me in, in entertainment means. I mean, just that's that's on a personal level. But just I, I find that there's an intrinsic selfishness in that idea or that desire. And I yeah. think that I, I think that question. The people who would say yes are the type of 
unhealthily fixated fans that are really causing more harm to this franchise than not. Okay. So I would not lump myself in with those. I mean, I, those sure. are the people who have demands of how this franchise needs to go and hit their certain checklist and things like that. And I would not lump myself in with those because, yeah, I, I didn't. I, I thought the prequels suck, and I still think those are really, really horribly flawed movies. And I know people, good friends, people whose opinions I trust on a lot of things within this podcast community, and some of them have, like, the Revenge of the Sith Episode 3 at, like, their number two or number three favorite movie out of all That's of bananas. I see that, too, and that's absolutely bananas. I, and it's not just acquaintances. It's also critics and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't get that because I think that is objectively the worst of all of them. But – they find other value in that and okay whatever but when it comes to specifically like the the newer ones uh, yes no i don't think any of the five disney movies is worse than any of the three prequels um okay good no no like i, I know i'm damning you with faint praise for saying this but yeah. like that was kind of an unspoken thing that i was worried about but but uh, but at least you do you sense on what i'm saying that that like sensing but, this but, picking but up this trend well, I do. No, I do. I actually, okay. I because I see that a lot in my social media. And at first, you're right. At first, it seemed like it was a generational thing, but it's not yeah. that clear. There are people now who I think, and maybe it's a result of them being disappointed in the pre in the sequels that they're not turning out the way they hoped. That they there is this backlash and they're swinging back to the pre the prequels and seeing value there that they wouldn't have before. Um, I also I do think you cannot discount the effect that the Clone Wars animated series has had in the prequel saga that era, and That's people fair. people see that as a very redemptive bridging device that watching that show and then going back and watching the movies they're bringing their positive opinions of obi-wan and anakin and the jedi council and things from that show they're yeah, not seeing those out a, into yeah. the, they're bringing that and and those those aspects those qualities were absolutely not in the movies that george lucas made but the audience now is bringing something different they're bringing a, a retroactively bringing a different interpretation so i think that is helping them forgive some of those sins but but yeah ultimately going back to the selfishness of the premise i mean would i be a happier more satisfied star wars fan if i could go back to when i was a kid and, and that was all the content that i had at my disposal yes perhaps but look at i mean there are there are kids now there are entire generations who see Finn and Rey and Kylo Ren, the way that we saw Han, Luke, and Leia, Le and and we yeah. we might be able to compare them and say, well, their character arcs or their story structures or or their beats, they're more superficial. They're not as good at archetype as as the original ones that we followed. But this other generation doesn't see it that way. They have new heroes to look up to, and I I mentioned it on other podcasts. To me, it comes down to one of the many times that I saw The Force Awakens in the theater, seeing three probably young teenage girls, maybe like 10 years old in that range or something, watching that lightsaber fly into Daisy Ridley's hand. And when she ignites it and that John Williams Force theme kicks up, yeah. those girls had never seen anything as cool as that in their lives. And I was like, no. if, if I Like that moment itself, just watching that vicariously through that moment and everything like that like i i wouldn't i wouldn't strip away even the worst star wars movie experiences to deny those people that experience 
Yeah, that, that that's fine. And, and, like, I think that's an excellent answer. And, like, certainly if it came down to that, if we had the magic wand to make that happen, that should be, above all, the most, con- like, important consideration in, like, wiping the data bank, right? Like, so, so that's right. But at the same time, it's also, it is a benevolent answer, and it's also kind of a dodge, because it, it's, it's a great answer, but it also allows you to not have to engage with, like, like your own personal empirical uh, experience of the, the films um, and how you enjoy them and how you perceive them. Now, again, it's a good answer because, like, these don't belong to us. Right. These don't belong to us. And, like, one of the only big problems I've had with the Disney movies is that it's exposed fandom as a thing that I just kind of don't want any part of. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, there's an inherent selfishness in the premise. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it is still a question worth engaging with on its own terms in terms of like your own sort of like experience of the the movies and the quality of the movies. Okay, so you know, so here's where here's where I might okay, actually engage and and think about it more personally for myself. Sure. After after the prequels, once I was kind of getting in, I I kind of denied the canonosity or whatever of those movies. Like when people said, you know, they, well, George Lucas created them. So if, if that his version of the clone wars contradicts something that was in one of those Timothy Zahn novels based on yeah. the timeline or what they, what we thought the clones were back in, you know, 1993, um, yeah. if, you know, if his movies, you know, if that's the way he envisioned them, well then those are canon and you have to ignore what was in the expanded universe books and everything. And that was just really unsatisfying because I didn't like the final results. So I said, well, uh, that's not the canon that I want to follow now. I mean, it, sure. in my headspace, that's not the origin of Darth Vader. That's not the the dark road that Anakin Skywalker took down because that's really, really lame. Yeah. Um, but then when I got to these movies, I was like, okay, I'm ex- I'm prepared to accept The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker as as the new canon for what happens after Return of the Jedi. And now, I mean, do I still think that? I, I don't know. I mean, I might, I might be in a place where, you know, I'm just going to say that is one interpretation of what eventually happened to Han, Luke, and Leia. But in my headspace, I still think of their adventures that came after the movies and the children that Han and Leia had and what became of them. And- That's fair. That's totally fair. But I just want to make it clear that by saying that you're assent- you know, like there is a soft yes that you're giving because yeah, again, it's like, and again, I'm not accusing you of this because like, it's a still a good, it's a good answer. And it's a good answer that sort of respects the healthiness of what fandom should be and how it is ultimately a personal subjective experience. And you don't want to take it away from other people. And it's like a community thing. You are giving the right, you are giving the, the, the right answer. You are giving the correct answer. You're giving the answer that you should give, but understand that the second part that you just said to me, reads as a oh yeah, I'm, I'd be totally fine if these hadn't happened, and on on, on some level, I wish they hadn't. Or I, I mean, I will just say I would be a lot happier if they happened differently. I mean, yeah, these are yeah. these are not like the absolute movies that I I wish they are, but as a guy almost forty years old who still loves the original movies, I can watch Return of the Jedi now and say I wish something different had happened to that scene. Or you know what I you know I I would have made a a slight little change if I could have made my own special additions to the original Star Wars movie I would have made a uh, made a slight tweak here or there or something to the original I don't hold the original trilogy as such a sacred cow that they are beyond reproach that's not true like I I can see flaws in those and 
And if, you know, if I had that magic wand, if I had the ability to make the Star Wars saga the way I absolutely wanted it, those original three are not untouchable. No, I, I think that's right. It's funny that you bring that up because, you know, I was trying to sort of engage with the the good faith, you know, criticisms of a movie like Rise of Skywalker. And, and you know, one of them that I constantly hear about is the, the sort of plot logic that goes into it. And even then, and, and Ryan, you know, I've been very vocal with you on social media and, and, you know, brief interactions about the many, many, many problems narratively with that movie that makes it not cohesive, that makes it kind of a mess, and still acknowledging that I love it because plot logic is is important. I don't want to, you know, diminish it at all. But to me, if anything, if nothing else, the prequels showed that plot logic to me is nothing compared to at least the appearance of plot clarity, um, as well as the strength of dialogue and the strength of acting and direction. And so, you know, we could, I could jump into the plot logic problems of Rise of Skywalker. I think I described it to you the other day as like, hey, it's, it, if there was a Hall of Fame for the more you see this movie, the more the thread starts to unravel, I think Rise of Skywalker would be like a first ballad inductee. And yet... I could, you know, I was just thinking the other day, you know, during this quarantine, like, I, I've obviously had trouble, like, sleeping. And so one of the things that was keeping me up for, like, an extra half an hour the other night was, like, wait a second. And and maybe you've addressed this and maybe you already know the answer because I don't delve too much into uh, um, the, uh, you know, outside expanded universe. But I was like, wait a second. Why was there – why was part of Return of the Jedi a separate, you know, Leia under the guise of a separate bounty hunter separately getting Chewbacca? Why didn't Boba Fett just bring them both in at Empire Strikes Back? <laughs> He, he knew. Wait a second. What's happening? Chewbacca was right there. Chewbacca was in Cloud City. I don't understand. I anyway. So so I just feel like I could jump down that rabbit. You know, and and you know, you you brought up either earlier today or yesterday. I'm starting to lose sense of space and time during the lockdown. But you were asking about you know the hero's journey for Ray and what were the constituent component parts of the hero's journey. Can you define them? And I assume you were doing that. So you could sort of identify the flaws and what they were attempting to do. And there are, you know, and, and there are many false starts. And, you know, I think in Rise of Skywalker, there are at least multiple points where you could say, aha, there's her hero's journey coming full circle. Or, or moments where it's like, oh, the, the hero's journey actually came to an end in Last Jedi. So what's with this other movie? So, like, I get why you were asking that. I get where you're going with that. I don't know if that's going to be the subject of a future podcast or you're going to write about it. But, like... Why was Luke going to the Death Star in Return of the Jedi, given the plans, given the imminent destruction of the thing? Like, couldn't he have tried to turn Darth Vader at a different time? Couldn't he have tried to do it on the forest moon of Endor, where there weren't these other constituent elements that would have added pressure to his quest to turn his father? That, that to me, you know, in a lot of ways, that whole part, as important as it is ostensibly, it, the plot logic of that, given the higher stakes, is as kind of silly and non-consequential as Canto Bite uh, from Last Jedi. So I, so to me, it's like, yes, plot logic is important, but when I look at these Disney movies, I'm like, guys, do we, we had such high expectations. We, we talked routinely about the prequel trilogy ruining our childhoods. It won Golden Raspberry Awards. <laughs> like, people held viewing parties to make fun of them. Get a hold of yourselves. The sequels are much, much, much better objectively. I mean, am I, I don't know, am I emphasizing this incorrectly? Am I, am I putting too much um, on things like dialogue and acting? No, no, and I, I am curious at times, like, how, how my reviews or how my 
interpretations of the movies is coming off in the way that I talk about them and the way that I review them. Because I think, especially given the last episode of this show that I did, um, it, it probably sounds like I am a hater and I just I, I just trash these movies uh, uh, unrepentantly, but that is absolutely not true. I have loved, legitimately loved aspects of all five of these new movies. There have also been aspects of all five of these movies that I have been really disappointed by uh, or, or just frustrated or confused or, or felt like I was like kind of kicked in the stomach. And, and and that makes it really frustrating because I like initially after I saw The Rise of Skywalker, I ranked it as my favorite of the new five. And I think maybe it was just because the emotional kind of beats that it left me in kind of a positive space and having more interest in the future of Star Wars by the end of that. So it kind of left me. Yeah. Good. And now having seen the movie again, I'm like, well, I think objectively it might, it probably is the worst of the five, like just on the, on the technical aspects of the, of the movie. But it's still really hard for me to rank all five of them because like, I, like I think they would all end up in, in that C to low B minus range or something like that, just because of the, the their strengths and their weaknesses. And, and getting back to what you were saying, like uh, with the, the yeah the question that I was posing about Ray's Ray's story arc, and I wasn't trying to be facetious about that. I was actually trying to compare it to something like Luke's journey. Uh, because uh, if they are in fact like the protagonists, and what about yeah. Ray's made me feel, particularly in this last one, made me feel like a little bit confused and just frustrated by that last scene when she goes to Tatooine. Something about it was ringing untrue. Not just the fact that she picked the name Skywalker when I didn't think that that was necessarily appropriate, but with Luke. And you're right. I mean, he there were other ways. I mean, the going him going to the Death Star and, and standing in front of the Emperor was. Somewhat contrived for the plot of that movie, but I think the emotional truth was true because if you clock Luke's journey the entire time throughout the trilogy, what did he want? He wanted to be a Jedi Knight like his father. But yeah. when his journey started, he didn't really understand what that meant. Because you remember, he told Yoda he thought a Jedi was a great warrior, and Yoda laughs, his, laughs in his face. And and so that's not what it is. And if you think about it, the culmination of Luke's journey is not him defeating Darth Vader in physical combat in in, in lightsaber combat. It's not him being the superior fighter. What makes Luke it's saying a no to Jedi, the Emperor? It's when he throws his weapon down, yeah. when he offers yeah. his enemy mercy and compassion. And and even yeah. at the risk of his own life, because Vader could have swung at him, or the Emperor then tries to kill him and everything, it was that risk, that ability to sacrifice himself for the sake of mercy in an act of love, and that yeah. action has the 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 effect on Darth Vader. That that is what causes him to reject the darkness and betray the evil of the Emperor. And that is ultimately what sta- what saves the day. That's how the Emperor is killed. It's because of Luke's act of love and mercy. It's not the lightsaber combat that wins the day. It's yeah. it, and that is that I felt like was what being a Jedi was really truly about. And that sure. is when Luke understands it and when he actually becomes it. But I didn't like. So what is what is the parallel for for Ray then? Like, what does she want, and when does she realize it that that she was wrong or that she was right, and when does she achieve it? And you pointed out, I don't know if her arc changes, but it feels like she she has she kind of keeps getting the same thing throughout the trilogy. 
Well, I don't know about that. I guess that's where I would push back a little bit. Um, I think a, a very justified critique of these three movies is that they're probably better as self-contained films than they are as an overarching trilogy that makes sense mm-hmm. and hangs together. I agree with that, I think, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think that the you know if we are going with the hero's journey A to B to C – Ray's journey is less clean and elegant than Luke's because of all the other stuff that needs to be shoved in there. But I do think there are, and I said this to you on social media, there was like, there were, to me, there were multiple iconic moments that touched on checking the box off of her journey, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, in Force Awakens, for me, it was like, I mean, she was just going to stay on Jakku, right? Really, it was just to stay on Jakku. And then she affirmatively, you know, especially after. Uh, Maz gives her the lightsaber and she feels the force reaching out to her. She, I'm never going back again. I'm not doing this. She was running out into the woods to escape from all of it. So like box one of that journey was at the end, after she gets rescued, when she, when, when uh, BB-8's map links up with R2-D2's, now think about, think about what just happened. Like Starkiller base has been vanquished, but these guys are going to be on the run at some point very soon. They're going to have to like leave the base but it, but at the same time, you know, the, the First Order is coming for them and getting Skywalker is the highest priority. So in a matter of, you know, uh, a few minutes for us moviegoers, Ray goes from not wanting to ever go back to being held captive to sort of like exercising her force powers for the first time on the Starkiller base, getting rescued, uh, watching Han Solo die, coming back. And then when they put the map together, she makes the affirmative decision to go off and find him because there is something about this. There's, she wants to be a Jedi because there is something inside of her that's being called out to that the Force is trying to reach. That, so that, to me, checks off one box of the journey. Like, there could be a lot. I mean, Leia should go be with her brother, don't you think? Wouldn't it make sense for Leia to go find him? She's just suffered this tremendous traumatic loss of her, par- her former partner and Luke's buddy. Um, and it would make sense that she would go and get her brother, this person she's desperately seeking. And the scavenger girl goes because she is a Jedi. She is trying to be a Jedi. That is her goal. So, like, she affirmatively makes the choice to go find Luke Skywalker is box one. And, like, box two is in Last Jedi when she's trying to get Skywalker to, to come back and lead the Resistance. And he says no. And then she's like, she's she's sending mash notes to Kylo Ren through, you know, Jedi (laughs) telepathy. And she is tempted. And she finally says, look, like, I finally know the truth about why he left. And there is still good in him. And if you're not going to go with me, then I'm going to go and turn him. It's our only chance. She goes, she confronts him and he won't turn. And he tries to get her to turn with him. And her next affirmative act, like I said, is at the end of Last Jedi when she leaves and she closes the door of the Millennium Falcon um, on Crete in his face as he's reaching out to her. No, I am not this. I am not going to be with you. I am part of the resistance. This is who I am. This is these are the people to whom I belong. But she's not completely a Jedi yet. And she is still, you know, she is still someone who is searching. Where do I come from? Who do I belong to? Yes, she's with the resistance. Yes, that's part of it. And that's why the narrative is a little bit like fuzzy at that point. But the next affirmative act parallels what Luke Skywalker did in Return of the Jedi. She doesn't kill Kylo Ren after kicking his ass for the third time. She heals him. And she and after hearing of her heritage and her um, Palpatine lineage, she leaves again. She wants to like die on the, the Luke Skywalker island planet 
and not be a part of this. Skywalker comes back and not only says, hey, confronting fear is the destiny of a Jedi. That's how you become a Jedi. But also, like I said, it's the Harry Potter principle of, yeah, you're a Palpatine. It is not our abilities that define us. It is our choices. You cannot run from this fight. It's when she affirmatively goes to Exegol to confront the Emperor and like take her place as the leader of the Resistance. And so I look at that last scene as dumb fan service, but really I don't think it's an extra moment or an extra beat. I just think of it as like affirmation of what she already knew. Now, was this hero's journey as elegant and clean as Luke Skywalker's in the original trilogy? No. And there are many people to blame for that. And I think one of the big problems that's aside from toxic fandom is filmmakers not talking to each other. I think you did an excellent job in one of your last podcasts about positing this idea where like, J.J. Abrams made The Force Awakens because he didn't like um, Return of the Jedi, and Ryan Johnson made The Last Jedi because he didn't like The Force Awakens, and J.J. Abrams made Rise of Skywalker because he didn't like Last Jedi. All of that is totally fair, and that, that, that kind of makes sense. But like a little cohesion and talking amongst the filmmakers, a, little, a fewer amounts of toxic fans demanding fan service, like repeatedly, repeated fan service shoved down our throats, I think that journey would have been a little bit clearer. But to kind of pretend that it's not somewhat clear and it's not, like, somewhat obvious, it's not rocket science. It's not that complicated. It's just, you know, it was multiple times in each movie instead of, like, one clean arc. Yeah, and I think part of the, that confusion, though, still goes down to a little bit of the, of the writing and the storytelling because you're saying that she wants to be a Jedi because the Force is kind of calling out to her. That, feel, that feels very impersonal to me. There, there isn't, like... She just she wants to do that just because it's it's something that's it's just a feeling inside her. Whereas Luke actually had an external motivation for that. He had an impetus for that. I mean, we know that he always wanted something more, but we at least had yeah. that scene where he finds out that he's part of this legacy. And Ray didn't have that yeah. until the very very end. She didn't have that. Like, now, because I I kind of think like if if her story was about finding her real family and rejecting the emperor as as the where she came from and embracing another kind of family another kind of path or destiny i think that could have almost been done without her being a jedi or without her having the force like that could have just been done just through other other actions in the movie that doesn't feel like her destiny is necessarily linked to being the you know the last Jedi or something. No, and, yeah. And part, like of is, part of that I think is just the muddled stakes of sure. where where the Jedi are at this point in history and, and the nature of the Force and is it being proactive in sinking? Because I, I mean we we had this discussion actually with my wife, not even part of a podcast after the Force Awakens. Was it seemed like the for the nature of the Force was changing, and that it was sort of like it it abhors a vacuum, and that when in the absence of any kind of hero, the the Force kind of created a new hero in reaching out to Rey. That was back when we had all the evidence that she wasn't part of any great legacy, and I think that yeah. was that actually made the Force more interesting, and that would have been a a fun thing to debate. Hey, hey, they wanted to give that to us, Ryan. They wanted to give that to us. You had Ryan Johnson right there saying your parents were nobody. They sold you off for mm-hmm. drinking money. They're buried in an, an unmarked grave on Jakku. They, they wanted to give that to us. And like because we are awful and because we are the worst, we couldn't do it. And like <laughs> and, and and smart people Smart people that I know and respect, smart people who care about movies in general and smart people who care about Star Wars movies in particular, from the moment the trailers for Force Awakens came out, like the obsession, the unending obsession was, who is this person from? Whose child is this Kylo Ren? 
So who's Ray from? I'm gonna bet you money that it's like it's it's Han Solo's daughter or Luke Skywalker's daughter. Like that's the thing. It's like we set ourselves up to fail as fans and like you know and consumers of this narrative because like we are always unendingly trying to put them in a box and like you know th- well this is- I think there was a precedent for that in because of the prequels and because it's set up like that there was a saga and I actually I get like I start to grind my teeth every time I would hear somebody like quote George Lucas and saying that the whole Star Wars saga was really Anakin Skywalker saga and he was really the hero of the whole six movies I was like no he was not it was not his story in the in the original trilogy yeah. it was Luke's you're changing that retroactively to fit the narrative of the prequels um but but based on that i mean i do think i mean it's if if you're looking at them chronologically it was a generational thing so if you're looking at this as the next generation and plus the people who had grown up with the expanded universe those movies introduced a a generation of new heroes that were the sons and daughters of luke Han and leia so I don't think it was ridiculous to have those expectations that the new movies would be about those characters, because we were kind of told that that's what it was about. I mean, I I will say... It was ridiculous to be outraged when presented with a contrary idea, okay, midway through. It's fine to have those expectations, it's fine to have those questions, although, you know, I, I didn't and I was, you know, personally looking forward to her not being from anyone or anything because this notion of like anyone can be a hero is extremely appealing mm-hmm. uh, to me a five foot seven south asian person who wanted to play basketball <laughs> like <laughs> like this notion is is very appealing and has a lot of cachet and so it's fine to have those expectations i mean even the the, the frothing at the mouth speculation fine i suppose but the the backlash when we get that opportunity in The Last Jedi. So suddenly we have to go back and like start connecting the dots when they retcon that is upsetting because the possibility of The Last Jedi was that we can sort of free ourselves of, of the shackles of a very confined way of storytelling. And I do think it opened itself up to possibilities. And when you make a decision, when you make a collective decision to give in to you know, the the complaints of, of fans about that particular storyline, like, you end up straightjacketing yourself and you end up trying to serve a million people and pleasing none, which apparently was contributed to sort of the ADHD-like quality of Rise of Skywalker. I mean, I might be going off on a tangent, but, like, this is another no, but, problem. Yeah, no, and, I mean, this is we. This is what I talked about with Mike Gillis and Gutierrez and, and the other guests on, on my last episode, I, and I completely agree with this, and... The more I kind of think about it, like the well, I mean, the, this isn't like a new revolution, but the the direction that Johnson wanted to take the Last Jedi and like the actual lines that he gave to Kylo Ren, where he said, "Kill the past if you have to," is like yeah. forget about those things, reject those things. Those that was what I wanted the Star Wars saga to do before the Force Awakens came out. That's what I wanted. Yeah. I didn't want movies that were beholden to the original cast members. I thought that was going to be a failing. I wanted them to stick new territory to go in new directions to set a new tone for the new generation. That was what I asked for. And then I saw The Force Awakens, and son of a bitch, it tricked me. It, it lured me in with nostalgia and being a reboot of the original movie that gave me so much fan service that I was lulled. I, I, and, and I felt like that. I was like, oh, this was such a good movie. This was a better made movie than Return of the Jedi on a technical level. I Yeah, I loved The Force Awakens. I was so happy when I saw that one. So then, but it, it set me up for then to, to reject 
what I was wanting beforehand, which was the things that The Last Jedi had. So by the time I got both those movies, they were in such conflict that I got pissed off at both of them. And- it's interesting that you say that. It's interesting you say that because my interpretation of that is, okay, Force Awakens had such a high bar to clear, right? Because it had to be interesting. It had to be compelling. It had to give sort of emotional beats and payoff moments that people had been waiting for, for you know, so everyone could have buy-in. It had to sort of reject the, the movie-making quality of the prequels. Um, it had to serve all masters at once. And so my interpretation was, yeah, well, that was a kind of a beat-by-beat remake of A New Hope with some really intriguing new stuff sprinkled in. Wow, I'm glad they got all that stuff out of the way so they don't have to do this in the next movie and we can just dive into the story. And and listen, uh, we are both, you know, I'm not going to be like, oh, we are two brilliant people, but like we're reasonably intelligent fans, certainly, who have reasonably different expectations that, you know, are totally justified. But this is kind of where you get into the problem because like the whole Disney project is pleasing so many people. And when you set out to please so many people, you will end up pleasing none of them. Mm-hmm. That is a that is a reality of big business movie making, and that is a reality of life. Do you still think The Last Jedi is the best of the new ones? I do. I think that The Last Jedi is the best of the new ones. I think The Last Jedi is a movie that will probably not only stand the test of time, but get better with time, more highly regarded, although I think critics highly regarded it when it came out. I also view The Last Jedi as a very serious inflection point in the history of the Star Wars franchise in the sense that like, it gave us an opportunity to creatively go one way, and we didn't. <laughs> and it's also the point of demarcation where a lot of fans still kind of jumped off the boat. So, you know, and, and a good way of, of tracing that is the box office returns, right? Force Awakens, you're talking $2 billion dollars. Rogue One standalone, kind of a, 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 you know, $1 billion, which was huge. Mm-hmm. It was huge. But then, you know, Last Jedi, we're expecting it to do Force Awakened numbers, $1.3 People were, like, unexcited after seeing it. People were let down. You didn't have the kind of robust repeat business. Um, and I'll admit, when I first saw it, I was kind of like, huh, what was that? And it has taken a long time for me to sort of turn on it as this you know, uh, as kind of a masterpiece, a, a flawed masterpiece, but a masterpiece nonetheless. But it's, if nothing else, it definitely is an inflection point where people jumped off the boat and they never came back. They jumped off the boat and never came back. And, and you know, you can sort of start to see the dominoes because it was this sort of muted reception to Last Jedi and that it, 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 muted reception slash outright hostility from fans. And then you spill that over to Solo, released six months later. And I'll tell you what, Ryan, that was Memorial Day weekend of 2018. Like the Friday opening, the theater I was at was 25% full. The opening Friday, 25% yeah, I did, full. I didn't see it for two weeks. Yeah. And, and there was a look, there was a reason you didn't see it for two weeks. Like, there, I mean, actually, people, I think the opening Friday of Solo, I went and saw Avengers Infinity War again. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's, now again, there, maybe there were reasons. Maybe there were a lot of intelligent people just being like, why are we doing a Han Solo movie? Or maybe there were people that had picked up the trades and read about the movie being in trouble and all the reshoots and everything. Or, you know, but the reviews were good. The reviews were good. Um, you know, they weren't like universally stellar, but they were like, this is solid. This is really good entertainment. It's a good time. You won't regret going. And the, the movie theater was 25% full and the box office receipts were less than $400 million. And that is a direct result of maybe un- lack of enthusiasm for the product itself of Solo, maybe super saturation coming on the heels six months later of another Star Wars movie. But 
it was because of Last Jedi. It was because of Last Jedi. And everything can be traced to everything about how we everyone currently feels about the Disney the Disney movies can be traced to what Ryan Johnson tried to do with The Last Jedi. And like to me, I don't want to use the word tragedy because there are actual tragedies in the world as we sit here quarantined. <laughs> um, but like I view it as, as really upsetting, really unnecessary like and part of a, a byproduct of like just sort of the impossibility of making these movies right making these movies successful like and making these movies creatively robust um but i'll tell you what i mean just to go back to the original premise real quick is that like these people i talk to that are like oh kathleen kennedy did this ruined this and oh it's the mouse it's the corporate man and i'm j and, and i'm just like brother let me tell you something those prequel movies could have stood to do to undergo a little Disney quality control during shooting. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I'm talking about. You know that a Kathleen Kennedy would have gotten in there and just been like, what the hell are you doing? What is this script? No. No to this, no to that. Fire Hayden Christensen. What are you doing? So, so I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm a little sensitive to that. I'm a little because, you know, and I'm usually very cognizant of the fact that like creators of franchise because because part of the byproduct of, hey, the prequels were actually really good and you guys are stupid is this notion of like, ah, oh, Lucas should have had the opportunity to work on this. This isn't George Lucas's vision. And it's just like, yeah, I know. Good. <laughs> that, that's a good thing. And usually, Ryan, you know, we, we've talked about properties, whether television or film and how important it is that a creator have the right to, you know, see the thing through. And I agree. It's almost without reservation. It's, it's almost always a bad thing when a creator, the original creator, is not seeing his, project, his or her project through to the end. But I kind of feel like the prequels are so bad that we had to, in effect, do a citizen's arrest of George Lucas and take the property away from him. So that, that's why I'm just like, wow, prequels, you would have really benefited for some, from some Disney oversight and from reshoots and some firings and that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Mm. There's another idea that I've uh, – another – premise or theory that I've heard kind of floating around. I, I think a few people have mentioned it on previous shows, and I kind of wanted to get your take. People saying that the Star Wars universe has a finite amount of stories in there, and yeah. there are only so many places you can go. Do you think that's true? 100%. 100%. 100%. I think that is, like, here's the thing. You guys, I'm not, not you specifically, but, like, these people, these haters, like, this is not going to be the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You people need to get a hold of yourselves and like understand that like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it is a it is a unicorn. It is sui generis. It is not something that can be easily replicated. We, we need to stop with this idea that we can sort of like factory produce this like huge tentpole of like creatively robust movies about like, you know, incredible new characters. No, like, first of all, the the pool of heroes, legend, space, Western stories it is much more shallow than you think it is. And like a lot of, again, smart people that I talked to that were, you know, complaining about how, you know, how much of a, a copycat sellout, you know, The Force Awakens was in retrospect and how The Last Jedi made some bad decisions. Uh, you know, they talk about this and they're just like, well, look at look at the Thrawn trilogy. Look at look at that. Why didn't you go in that direction? And it's like, look, I'm I'm reading this. I'm about like, you know, three quarters of the way through the first one. And it's it's fine. It's very good in a lot of ways. But a lot of the elements of these stories that you're talking about are not going to translate to movie making the way that you think they will or they should. And to quote Mark Hamill from The Last Jedi, this is not going to turn out the way you think. It is hard to make these movies because they have to make money. And the, the, the kind of digressions that you go to in the, these Thrawn trilogy books and in some of these comics, they're not going to hold up 
you know, to movie making audiences as well as you think. Like the pool of intellectual of Star Wars related intellectual property that we can trot out there, like to 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 be a self standing universe is not as deep and substantial as you guys think it is. Tell me why I'm wrong. The reason I think you're kind of wrong there is because I think something like the Mandalorian TV show kind of maybe pokes flaws of that because if you look at each episode of those, like feels like like the creators like Dave Filoni or John Favreau basically opened up the Star Wars role playing game from 1985 and looked at the different adventure hooks that they had there and basically just started checking off the boxes and going through those. And I think each one of those stories could have been expansive. And I think a story like Solo, which I think is a much better movie than a lot of people give it credit for, I think the biggest problem was making that about Han Solo. But if you just took the story, the premise, the adventure hook of it's a young man getting the keys to the car for the first time or getting his first car, getting his first spaceship – and and going on that adventure, that kind of like coming of age type of story, but set in the Star Wars universe, I think that that it could be a very very appealing movie to some. And and I did do a previous episode where I think you could translate other movies, like other types of genre movies, and plant them in the Star Wars universe and find success with those. Now, are they going to make two billion dollars? Probably not. And I think that is just a problem of the expectations held by Disney. They spend too much money on the movies, and then they demand too much. And they're ret- yeah, it's, and, and and you're not going to like this, but I think it's Marvel's fault. Like, you know, I, I know what a big fan you are, and I like those movies a lot. I think they're a lot of fun. I think they're really well made. But, like, they have taken a hammer to, you know, the the, the movie-making industry in, like, so many probably unintended ways. But, like, you know, a really good example of this, I, I shared this article with you. <clears throat> you know, I'm a huge Star Trek fan as well, and I think you have dabbled in and out of enjoying some of the Star Trek properties, the movie properties from time to time. And, like, there was this extraordinary article where they've been having trouble getting the, the fourth – um, Paramount rebooted Star Trek movie off the ground since 2016 and Simon Pegg, the, um, one of the stars and the, the co-writers of the last one, just flatly gave an interview a few weeks ago that was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And it's like, well, why is that not going to happen? He's like, it's easy. Because if a, movie may, if a movie like this comes out, given the cost structure and it makes like $500 million or less, it's not going to get made. The margins are such that they're not going to get made. And, and I think that's a real problem because I still think that there is sort of a, a pure joy and an adventurous quality and like a, a very, you know, a, a very exhilarating aspect to the movie going experience. Now, I think a, an intelligent response might be, hey, some of these things might be better translated to television properties. Go nuts. That's fine. That would be great. I think your idea of a non-solo, solo type story might translate better to the smaller screen. But the the margins of movie making uh, in this universe because of what marvel has done has inflated expectations i think unrealistically um and it has weighed down filmmakers and writers to the point where they have to hit certain beats and try to jam in as much as possible and jettison potentially creatively intriguing storylines to you know to to meet certain box office expectations and the result is incredibly diminishing returns like but i don't think right- that's new that might be a new evolutionary step of it but we talked about you know, 20 years ago that that um you know francis ford coppola in the 70s you know said george lucas killed the era of the independent filmmaker movie the the personal movie with star wars because it created this new genre of blockbuster that studios tried to to reproduce after that and you didn't get as many 
movies uh, like that the other guys were that that Lucas and and Spielberg kind of killed some of those personal touches. Yeah, no, that is true. It's always been a thing that has been floating around, but like there's a difference between a thing happening and then a thing becoming put on steroids to the point where it is the only thing. Well, I mean, then again, I, I I think blaming the Marvel movie or the Marvel stu- cinematic universe, the Marvel Studios for being really, really good at their jobs. I mean, it's I think. Oh, I blame Star Wars fans for being terrible too. Don't you worry. Yeah, I mean, that at at some point, like they have to decide: is that the only way to make movies? I mean, it, and that's that's a collective decision based on the other Hollywood studios. Yeah, no, it's true. And listen, we, you know, we could go on and on about this particular point, but I, just to pivot back, I would simply say that, look, in my calculus, there has been more than enough there in, offered in the last five years of Disney Star Wars movies to make these incredibly enjoyable, wonderful, delightful experiences. And that's irrespective of how other people experience these. And yes, again, it's a very benevolent answer that you gave, and it's it comes from the right place, and it is essentially the correct answer. But like, Man, these people gave us Ray. These people gave us Kylo Ren. Like, like J.J. Abrams found Daisy Ridley, like who was like tending a bar and like made her this protagonist and like made her someone that like I loved as much as Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, look, it, it, reasonable minds, I suppose, can disagree as to how complex a character she is, how much how, how you know much she's worth investing in. Although I would argue, if you really strip it down to component parts, I don't know that she's that much more of a superficial like like archetype than luke skywalker like yeah, no, again the, the the pool that we're playing in for these type of mythological movies is pretty damn shallow right. you know again um, i i don't know what you presumed of me but i i am not somebody you need to be convinced that yeah 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 no. absolutely better than the prequels and i think i think what i would like to do at some point a future episode on for this show and definitely in the spirit of find your joy which is the kind of mantra for the network i think i will probably do my my best of the the sequel saga like the disney films and like really kind of highlight like my 10 or 15 best moments from these movies because these movies have a ton of things that i genuinely like and love and scenes yeah, that bad. i revisit and i'll you know i'll wake up you know in the morning and when i do my workout before anybody else wakes up and i'll turn on one of these movies i'll turn on the last jedi and i'll watch that that battle in snoke's throne room when when ray and, and ben have to fight against the guards together that's one of the best action sequences i've seen in the last 10 years, to say nothing of just yeah. in a Star Wars movie. I, and, I, yeah, so, yeah, so I'm glad you feel that way. I, I really am glad you feel that way because I was kind of concerned that there was this undercurrent of, like, not hostility, but just, like, do you remember how you felt after, like, when you did that, like, that SOS podcast for, like, a minute and a half after Last Jedi when you're oh, like, yeah, yeah. guys, guys, I have nothing to say. Like, I, the, I was, the, the, I, yeah, it, it did a whammy. And again, I, it wasn't necessarily the fault of the movie, although... And this is not something I have the time or the inclination to go into right now, but I did kind sure. of mention it to you. Like my problems with the Last Jedi are not the problems that everybody else has, but I do think it, I do think that is a movie that says by subverting the audience's expectations and taking it into a new direction. I don't know if this was Ryan Johnson's intention, but the message he sent to me was, "I'm doing it smarter than you're used to." And if that's the case, then I think your movie has to be airtight. And there are a lot of just kind of. Sure. Uh, what I what I find to be fundamental story and character flaws in that movie and things that just don't click. So I was like, your movie isn't as smart as you think it is. That's a ju- that's a totally justified opinion. And the last thing I'd say about these particular ones is simply that again, I'd reiterate the point that the the, the when you announce something as a trilogy in advance, 
you kind of that's another way of putting yourself in a box. A good thing that Kathleen Kennedy has done. And by the way, I hope that she continues to chair Lucasfilm indefinitely, because I actually think she's doing a pretty good job given the competing stakes involved. Um, but one thing she said is, you know, we might want to get away from announcing trilogies because, hey, maybe we'll just have a movie. And if it naturally organically lends itself to future storytelling, let's do that, because I do think these the sequel trilogy in and of itself, like each movie in and of itself is delightful, is fun, is so well made and like in and of themselves, each one justifies its own existence. I think where we get into problems with them, where we can pick them apart is when we evaluate them as a whole, which is a fair way to evaluate them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, like you said, there's enough in the each one the moments and everything to really be delightful. I think they're wonderful and I don't understand the hate. So uh, I'm bringing a little hate of my own. No, and I agree with that. The they have said the Skywalker saga is concluded. This was the last chapter. So yeah. for better or worse, like those, those characters are resolved. I have no more emotion for for those characters, but I do want to see more Star Wars movies, not just the Disney. I'm glad to hear I, that. I do too. I am, I am excited. I hope the Disney Plus shows continue to come out, and I hope they're all as good as the first season of The Mandalorian, but I also want to see Star Wars movies. But they don't have to be episodes 10 through 12 or yeah. whatever. I mean, just and give I me hope more. Yeah, give me more done in one. They don't have to be whole trilogies. Just yep. give me something different. New heroes, new villains. Change the setting. Change like yep. I, I don't want to see. And let the, Bill the, Lord and Ryan Johnson and people like that just give them their sandbox and allow them the the, the, the depth to like that make is what some I want. mistakes. Yes. Do trial and error and figure it out because you will get – maybe you might not – everyone might not be like a, a home run, but like collectively the universe will be enriched creatively for that and, and good fertile creative ground begets more good fertile creative ground. It will grow exponentially like the coronavirus. <laughs> and with that, uh, I think it's time to move on to the end of this episode, which is – Omar, are you ready to be the first person to get the Galactic Questionnaire 4.0? Absolutely. Question number one. What is your favorite Luke Skywalker outfit? Ooh, okay. That's really good. I like the outfit. I like the, the little gray outfit he's in. When I don't know if he's in this the entire movie, but the gray outfit he's in when he flies the Cloud City from Dagobah and like takes on Darth Vader. Yeah, that's both the Dagobah and uh, and Bespin outfit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he looks cool as hell. Yeah. What is your favorite Leia Organa outfit? So I, I'm going to say Return of the Jedi, but not the gold bikini because like with the passage of time, that it horrifies me that that was a thing. <laughs> um, no, I actually I actually really dig the uh, the, the the camouflage like Endor, you know, because like I think she's always in her best element as a fighter, as a leader with a blaster in her hand. So like, yeah, like like 40 something Omar says, yeah, Endor, Leia, camouflage. Like, yeah. All right. Number three, a better suicide run. Green leader crashing his A-wing into the bridge of the Super Star Destroyer at the Battle of Endor. Yeah. Or Vice Admiral Haldo flying the cruiser at light speed into the First Order fleet? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, I think that the latter, uh, it was so unexpected. And I think the stakes were such that I think that the Rebels still would have been able to eke out the win without the, the Super Star Destroyer going down. Because it was probably on its last legs at that point, right? The fleet was collapsing. Mm -hmm. The Death Star was about to be totally destroyed. I don't know how much that Super Star Destroyer would have gotten the job done. But, like, Holdo took out the fleet and gave them a chance. All right. Question four. 
who is your favorite character not introduced in the films? Uh, wait, I don't understand. It could be from the one of the animated series. It could be from the Mandalorian. It could be from the oh, comics or books. Oh. Somebody, a, a character in the Star Wars universe that was not introduced in any of the eleven movies. Oh, okay, that's great. No, that's awesome, and it's really it, it's a really timely question because I recently started Clone Wars uh, after vowing to not want anything to do with it. And <laughs> and I was tired of hearing about this Ahsoka Tano because it's just like, oh my god, like stop. Like this one person cannot justify like a cartoon that takes place in the same time period as that direct, the prequels. But you no, know, she's great. And I'm very excited that uh, apparently Rosario Dawson is going to sign on to play her in uh, the next season of The Mandalorian. And like, I'm on board. I think she's a great character. Cool. All right. Question five. What is your favorite animal mount? The dewback that the stormtroopers had in Tatooine, the tauntaun, or the orback, which is the name of the space horse from the Rise of Skywalker that Jana's crew uh, rode into battle at the end? Oh, I hated that one. Um, I think that the, the tauntaun, because the, it paid the ultimate sacrifice. <laughs> you can get past the smell, sure. Okay. Yeah. Number six. Ray is the daughter of. A, two people nobody has ever heard of. B, a clone of the Emperor Palpatine that for some reason didn't look anything like him or have the Force. Or C, anyone else. Yeah, like my head obviously says B, which is, you know, that is, was a very disappointing retcon. Um, my heart says A. Like, it's got to be A. Like, I loved Rey from the moment she in Force Awakens when, like, she was screwing around with, like, the, the, the binoculars. And I was just like, who is this person? But it was never like, who is this person from? And th- that moment in Last Jedi when it was like, we don't know who your parents are and we don't care. I pretty much pumped my fist in the movie theater because that could have been something. And so if that's the closest we could get to people we had never heard of, I would love that. Uh, I just think too much continuity, too much lineage, let the past die. All right, final question. What is Baby Yoda's name? Oh, God. That's so great. That is so great. Uh, I hadn't even considered that. Um, Ernest, or Ernie for short. (laughs) And and an homage to, wait, did Frank Oz have anything to do with the Muppets? He did, right? I don't even care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sesame Street, Ernie. Ernie's like one of my favorite characters. Some bare thread connecting to Frank Oz and Baby Yoda. We're going to call him Ernest, but Ernie for short. Uh, <laughs> Baby Yoda will be the creative salvation of this whole thing, I, I'm, I'm convinced. All right. Omar, thank you very much for coming on. Give me those Star Wars again. Uh, listeners, you can find Omar's appearances on this sh- back episodes of the show. You've also made a couple of appearances on Pod Dylan. Uh, the Film and Water, the Film podcast, and Water podcast. One of my favorite episodes. You guys talked about Nixon. And, uh, yeah, as always, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to come on and angrily rant. This was a conversation a long time coming, and I think, you know, you made a lot of really exceptional points. Uh, yeah, let's hear some more Star Wars projects. It's the best. Hope so. Uh, listeners, we're going to take a short promo break right now, but I will be back on the other side with your listener feedback from the last couple of episodes. Don't go away. You may call him Lucky Wilbur. You may call him Bobby. You may call him Zimmy. But the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. 
Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. All right, going back to Valentine's Day, which feels like two years ago, not two months. Episode 33 featured Stella and me talking about shipping couples in the new Star Wars movies. The first comment on the Fire and Water Network website came from Brian Linton, who said, I enjoyed both the general and Star Wars-specific shipping discussions. One relationship you missed is Maz Kanata plus Chewbacca equals Chaz? Oh man, there's so many good names. Uh, Mabaka Choosy Chaz, no, Chaz is probably the best I'm not sure how I feel about this one given that Chewie is married at least according to the Star Wars Holiday Special and Old Legends continuity I'm not sure if that's true anymore in which case I would say more power to them though Maz might have some competition from Major Colonia the Resistance Doctor who seemed kind of sweet on Chewie in The Force Awakens In Stella's defense, I have to say that my daughter likes Jar Jar Binks. He's not her favorite character, that would be Padme, but he does make her laugh. I'm guessing that one's age at first encounter with Jar Jar has something to do with one's opinion of him, though I'm not sure if that's the only factor. Yeah, I mean, I guess time will tell if, uh, I mean, based on the, the discussion that I was having with Omar, I mean, if people are being more forgiving towards the prequels in general, will they be more forgiving towards Jar Jar Binks in particular? I don't know. We shall see. Uh, other comment from Damien Drowett Whiter, or Witter. I'm horribly sorry if I mispronounced that. I can tell that Ryan and Stella are following different people on social media than me, as the ships I see mentioned most by the queer fan community are Hux Poe, General Hux and Poe Dameron, and also Hux Lowe, General Hux and Kylo Ren. I prefer Hux Poe, as Oscar Isaac and Domhnall Gleeson have amazing chemistry. Have you seen Ex Machina? Good, good pick. Uh, Damien also said, I have also seen the suggestion that Admiral Haldo and General Leia may have had a relationship. This only works for me if you also accept that at one point, Leia had a drunken one-nighter with Poe, which would explain why Haldo distrusts him so much. Uh, I mean, uh, Leia and Haldo is a possibility. I mean, I know in the canon, like, they knew each other from back when they were both in the Senate together. Um, But Leia and Poe having a one-nighter... I I can kind of see that. I that's not I mean she does she definitely treats him like a son but there's also this this other weird thing about it. Yeah, so. Uh and Damien also said this also backs up my belief that Poe is the Lando of the new trilogy and has tried to have sex with every other character. Babu Frick is still sore. Eesh. Poe lets Ray take BB-8 on her solo journeys because he's trying to get the number of the fishy nuns from The Last Jedi. The hologram programmed into BB-8 is not safe for work. Wow. All right. Uh, Lizanne Oswald mentioned a couple of shipping couples, including Luke Skywalker and Sana Staros. Now, if you're not familiar with Sana, she first appeared in the new Marvel Star Wars comics, I think around 2016 or 17. Uh, She's a black woman and a bounty hunter who was claiming at one point to be Han Solo's wife. I don't know what ended up happening with her because I stopped reading the comics. 
Uh, but Lizanne suggested maybe Luke and Sana hooked up at some point, and they are, in fact, Finn's parents. Uh, this would account for his race, for one thing, but also the idea that maybe Finn was Force-sensitive in The Rise of Skywalker, like they were kind of hinting at for some weird reason. Um... That would have been interesting. Uh, I, again, not being that familiar with her in the comics beyond her really first appearance, I don't know what type of person she is or what might bring her and Luke together. Uh, it, it's certainly interesting. I mean, we, we kind of speculate what romantic relationships Luke might have had in the second half of his life. Um, I mean, for for most longtime fans, I mean, we only really know or think of Mara Jade or even before that, somebody like... Uh, um, Lunia, Lunia um, Bria Theron. Uh, no, I, I cannot even think of the woman's name from the original Marvel comics. Anyway, um, yeah, but I mean, ultimately, that makes Luke Finn's dad, and for them to never have any kind of scene or encounter would be a little bit unfulfilling, so I don't know. Uh, and then Lizanne also mentioned Qui-Gon Jinn and the Green Lady. I don't know who the Green Lady is. Uh, I, I also I haven't read a whole lot of Star Wars books set in the in the era when Qui-Gon Jinn was alive. So uh, then Chris Franklin said, "I will admit I am not much on shipping unless it is something hinted at by the creators. Like Ray slash Finn is clearly intended to be teased as a possible romance that may happen." Kirk slash Spock, uh, no, I don't think anyone involved in Star Trek ever seriously considered that a possibility, no matter the socially acceptable restrictions of the time. A lot of that is just fans reading into something they love that relates to their own lives, and I get that, I just don't put any more stock in it than, say, Shag's never-ending belief that Ray was a Solo slash Skywalker. I will say Lando's still making a proxy pass at Leia when he tells Ray and the crew to give her his love. That's our Lando. His buddy has been dead a short amount of time, but he's already moving on to the Widow, estranged or not. Uh, Chris says, I applaud Stella for liking what she likes. Someone has to like Jar Jar. I've really come to the conclusion that as long as you find something entertaining and it doesn't hurt anyone, more power to you. Find your joy in all that. And then, episode 34 was my epic, not quite oral history, but comprehensive review of the last five years of Star Wars under Disney, uh, which featured Mike Gillis, David Ace Gutierrez, John and Maggie Schaefer-Hames, Andy Leyland, and my brother Neil. Rob Kelly said, A titanic achievement, Ryan. This is more akin to audio journalism than merely podcasting. Realizing all of the editing you did here, I must think Zoom is somewhere smiling. Well, that's... Yeah. I don't, I don't even know what to say to that one, but... Uh, John Schaefer Hames said, If Studs Terkel was a Star Wars fan, he'd have made something like this. I'm sure Studs Terkel was a Star Wars fan. Uh, Chris Franklin came back and said, I personally think a lot of folks take Star Wars too seriously. I, I do, in fact, have a Star Wars podcast, Chris. Uh, and by that, I mean they cast depth and deeper meaning into the original films than is actually there. At its heart, the original film is a whiz-bang salute to old sci-fi movie serials, with some Kurosawa thrown in for good measure. It's not meant to be a deep analogy for our modern lives, like Star Trek was, and always should be. It's mostly spectacle peppered with some lovable characters that we like to cheer and villains we like to hate. 
Lucas forgot the cheering and hissing in his prequels, creating lifeless ciphers for the most part often out of really good actors, and he mired the story in low-level political intrigue, which is kind of the opposite of what you want in a Star Wars film. I don't hate those films, but their reliance on technology and lack of charm make them a bit of a slog to watch now. I think the sequel series has that charm in spades. Yes, they screwed up by not having a plan and sticking to it, no matter who was writing or directing, but I find them far more enjoyable to watch with great characters and great performances. So, yeah, pretty much on the same page that Omar and I are. Plus, my little girl found a hero in Ray, so I will always have a soft spot for both that character and Daisy Ridley. But thanks for the balanced approach to this. It was very refreshing to hear, given the fandom menace ranting and raving going on elsewhere. Uh, Mike Dane said, Thanks for a great show, everyone. It was awesome to hear such insightful conversations on one of my favorite fandoms. Also, a big thank you to Ryan for the editing work that must have taken. I echo what Chris Franklin said, that this show was very refreshing to hear after hearing all of the toxicity on Star Wars fandom out there. While I may not agree with some of the thoughts expressed, I certainly like to hear them in a well-thought-out conversation like this as opposed to someone screaming at me through Twitter. It also shows the amazing passion all of you have for these movies, whether you like them or not. I would love to hear more conversations like this, both positive and negative, in the future. Keep up the great work. And Tim Price said, So much fantastic discussions and points of view. What a wonderful production. Thank you, Ryan. Well, thank you for saying that, Tim. Thank you, Mike, Chris, Rob. Thank you, everybody who left comments on the previous episodes of Give Me Those Star Wars. Uh, I, I do certainly appreciate it. I know this is not one of the more popular shows on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, so sometimes it can be hard to find the motivation to do these episodes. But right now, I, I'm kind of in a mood where I want to talk about various aspects of Star Wars and and the different kind of the the whole history and the mythology. So I'm planning to keep the show going monthly at least for the time being. Um, that means I do have a show planned for the beginning of May that might drop on Monday, May fourth for the May the fourth be with you thing. Um, I'm excited about that one. Um, and then over the summer, I I definitely want to cover the Mandalorian season one in like full in depth, going episode by episode. And then later on in the summer, we've got this new set of uh, books in the new canon called The High Republic. Um, these are stories that's going to, I mean, it's, it's limited to print media or um, maybe possibly digital, but it's not going to be a TV show or movies, but it's going to be books for adults, children, young readers, comics, everywhere kind of in between, but all set in this era 200 years before The Phantom Menace. Uh, so it's at a time when the Jedi Knights are in they're are kind of at their peak. Um, the galaxy is still growing and expanding as the Republic is reaching out to more and more planets. Um, and everything would seem to be kind of like this is the kind of perfect, tranquil, peaceful place. There's not really a time of war. But we don't know what it is, but there's some sort of catastrophic event in the beginning that kind of sets things up and creates this new conflict. And there's a new race of villains um, that are not the Sith. They're not Dark Jedi. There's something else coming from some unknown place uh, that really kind of threaten the Jedi and the peace of the Republic. Um, and just because it's new and just because it's a different setting uh, with different characters, and, and I'm just, I'm very intrigued by that. I don't know how it'll go. I mean, maybe it'll, maybe it will disappoint me, but it, it's something it's Star Wars in name. Will it be Star Wars in feel if it's so different? That's just something that I'm interested in finding out. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, right there, a couple more episodes uh, planned for uh, the, the next couple of months, uh, and I hope you are enjoying them. Um, so, yeah, until, uh, until May the 4th, probably, that is all for now. Give Me Those Star Wars is a proud part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Give Me Those Star Wars. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. If you like this show or other shows on the Fire & Water Podcast Network, please consider donating to our Patreon page. Go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts for additional information. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Give Me Those Star Wars is not affiliated with Disney or Lucasfilm, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. It's a trap! 